Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is episode 154 of Historically Thinking. The presidential cabinet has, it would seem, been a reality of the American Republic since soon after its foundation. Yet, while executive departments are mentioned in the Constitution, the cabinet is not. And while the heads of departments were present, or soon to arrive in New York City when Washington took the first inaugural oath, they did not function as an institution until two and a half years later. With me today to discuss George Washington's cabinet, its personalities and personality, its history and its legacy, is Lindsay Travinsky. Listeners to the podcast will remember that in episode 118, she and I talked about this book, particularly about the research she had done for it and how she had put it together, while carefully avoiding as best as we could actually discussing the material of the book. And now that time has arrived. The book is done. It's published this very week, and it's called, surprisingly enough, The Cabinet. George Washington and the Creation of American Institution, published by Harvard University Press. Lindsay, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. So uh, how's that book tour going? <laughs> well, I've uh, I've managed to put together some great virtual events, um, so I'm really excited that people are willing to work with me about those things, but it definitely is not going to shape up to be the April, May, and June than I expected it would be. So I'm um, just trying to get creative and uh, doing a live book launch on April 7th, and then some additional things coming after that, and uh, hoping that people are eager for entertainment and want to tune into some online things. Yeah. So you're coming up with this uh, great idea, um, which I hope to do something for as neat as it's needed called the history summit 2020. Well, let's talk about that. What's that going yeah, to be? so um, I was supposed to, this past weekend, I was supposed to be presenting at the Organization of American Historians. Huh, and I was supposed to be listening to you at the Mer- Organization of American <laughs> Historians. That's funny. Yeah, I think there were a lot of us that were supposed to be there. So um, that obviously got canceled. And I know a lot of friends who had books coming out and the coronavirus just really hosed their plans. And so I thought, you know, there are all these great, virtu- there are all these great book festivals. Why don't I try and create something that can sort of replicate that experience, but online. So I created a website, it's called historysummit.com. And on April 25th, on Saturday, April 25th, all of the videos will go live on the author's profiles. Um, You can go there and see who's going to be speaking ahead of time. um, And the videos will go live on that day. And then head over to Twitter and ask after you've watched the videos, ask your favorite authors any questions about their book or history or the process. Um, And my hope was that by bringing everyone together in one place, we could sort of have a team effort and bring a lot of attention to these new books and sort of, you know, have it be a a group thing. So that was my, that was my goal. That was my intention. People seem pretty excited about it so far. So how many books do we have so far participating? So as of like 2 2 p.m. Eastern time. Um, yes. As of 2 p.m. Eastern time, I think I have 18 people committed. Whoa, because it was six when last I checked at around 10. Well, the there were six somewhere. profiles up. So okay. I had some additional people who I knew were um, planning to participate and just hadn't sent me their information yet. And so I don't mm-hmm. put up the profile until I have all the info. But um, about 18 have committed and uh, be getting up more pri- profiles every day. So I'm very excited about that and thrilled everyone is interested and excited as well. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the cabinet. Um, you begin the book by describing a bunch of things that we think we know about the cabinet, all of which are wrong. Yes, um, nothing like starting off as a contrarian, right? Well, well that's right. I mean, this is like the, that. It's Mark, the favorite Mark Twain quote. Um, it's the the problem is not the things that you know, but the things that you know that aren't so. Um, that that thing, uh, something like that. So, what are some of the things that we think we know that just aren't so? 
Well, most people think that because there has been a cabinet since the first administration, then that means it's been there from day one. And that very much wasn't the case. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the cabinet did not emerge until two and a half years into Washington's administration. So that's one myth I kind of like to try and debunk. Um, another is that it's in the Constitution. The word cabinet does not exist in the Constitution. And the delegates to the Constitutional Convention explicitly rejected a proposal for a cabinet. And then the third one is that the cabinet has stayed the same um, and has always sort of been this big behemoth or institutionalized group that we think of today. And um, it very much is an evolving process and uh, is really up to each president to determine how they're going to interact with their cabinet. And that's a very organic, unique thing for each administration. Well, we'll get to some of the, also the bigger implications, because you have a rather audacious um, uh, argument about the executive turn in American political history. We'll get to that near the end. But first, I, I'm curious, because I, I it, about the extent to which Britain was already engaged in cabinet governance in, say, 1788. Um, nowadays, um, in fact, there's been a lot of discussion in the British press over the last um, year and, and since uh, Boris Johnson took office, uh, less than a year, much less, about the return of cabinet governance. Mm -hmm. um, Tony Blair was very much of a, uh, I don't want to, he's very much a man alone prime minister in many ways. Um, Theresa May was very much a woman alone prime minister. Um, and so was David Cameron, a sort of synthesis of those positions. That's been a tendency in the prime ministership over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, prime minister is increasingly powerful. Um, uh, they both are head of government, but also then chief executive. Um, yet, technically, Britain is cabinet government. Uh, what does that mean? What did it mean in 1788, if anything? Sure. So the British cabinet, the big distinction is that all of the ministers hold a seat in the legislature while they are serving in the cabinet. So they are parliamentarians first and foremost, and the party that wins the election then puts together a cabinet of leaders from that party to basically assist the monarch. Um, and that was more or less true in the 18th century with, you know, varying degrees. Basically what happened was initially the king had a privy council. And the Privy Council was designed to provide advice and support and help with the management of governing. But as the Privy Council got larger, it became a more uh, it became inefficient, and it was just not a very good way to govern. And so um, the king started meeting. There was a, outside of the large chamber where the king met with the Privy Council, there was a small little room that was referred to as the king's cabinet. And um, in that room, the King would sometimes bring his favorite ministers, and so that group became known as the Cabinet Council. And then eventually council was dropped, and it just became known as the Cabinet. And so when Washington started meeting with the secretaries in 1791, and when people really started realizing this was happening in 1792, the Americans just borrowed that language, even if the actual institution looks a little bit different. Um, of course, the department secretaries in the United States are fully underneath the executive branch. They are um, not permitted to hold another position, another office in the government, especially in Congress. That's an explicit part of their job description. So there's some pretty key differences, but that language and where it comes from is definitely borrowed from the British tradition. And there's certainly a, a sense now, when, when Britain speak of cabinet government, that the, there has to be a consensus in the cabinet. Um, was that the case in the 1780s, or was the First Lord of the Treasury and the King's Prime Minister, did he operate um, with the advice of the cabinet, but not through consensus? Um, the cabinet rarely agreed with each other then, and my guess is they probably don't agree with each other all that much now either. No, they either. pretend to, but yeah. Um, in the, you know, it's interesting because King George III was actually a much more active monarch than a lot of people then and now give him credit for. And so there were certainly different ministers who were in charge of different aspects of government and they had different agendas, but he was much more um, active in determining what uh, which advice he was going to go with and which position he was going to go with, um, which is actually in some ways 
quite like Washington because Washington um, always was the one making the final decision, but sought out these different perspectives. So where did Washington gain his habits of taking advice? We think it's interesting to think of that as a habit. Um, but it is one. Um, and yeah. in some ways, Washington was skilled, at least in asking for advice, if not always taking it. And actually, he's rather skilled in taking it and making it his own and pretending that it was other person's people's ideas, too. We'll get to that. Um, so how did that, you, you spend the first chapter discussing his experience in war. So talk a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah. So one of Washington's greatest strengths really as a leader was, as you said, his ability to ask for advice and then use that advice to formulate a plan and a decision. And he very rarely entered into a situation with a firm idea of what he should do. He instead really tried to get all of the information first. And he started that process during the Revolutionary War, he would convene a council of war, which was made up of his officers and often aides de camp as well, to talk before they entered into a big engagement, to talk before they selected where winter quarters should be, to talk before they made a potentially controversial decision like a retreat. Um, so it was a very important part of his leadership strategy. And he was um, very skilled at managing what were quite large and boisterous personalities in the councils <laughs> of war. Um, <laughs> you know, these were men that had big egos, they had big ambitions, they had a lot of ideas about what how things should go. Um, they had their own plans. They, in the case of Charles Lee, would frequently come to the councils of war with a pack of hounds at his feet. and Or spaniels, I'm not sure which. But go on. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they were very loud, whatever they were. Um, so it was a very rambunctious sort of place. Um, and he, um, so Washington had a couple of strategies to sort of manage this process. And the first big thing was that he would send a list of questions ahead of time uh, to get the sort of the conversation going and to allow people to think about what advice they wanted to give. And then he would use those questions as the agenda as much as possible. Um, and if he felt like a officer didn't really have the opportunity to share their full opinion, or maybe they didn't really want to wade into what was a uh, raucous conversation, he would ask for written opinions afterwards. And this really allowed him to go back and consider all of the evidence, consider all of the perspectives, and make a decision on his own time. Um, and the other key thing he did was to uh, host a number of social gatherings for his various officers. They would have, um, especially in the winter, they would have balls and feasts. Uh, many of the officers' wives came to winter quarters, and so they would have social engagements. They would go out for rides. They would um, have meals together. And it was a really important part of building the camaraderie to help smooth over maybe any hurt feelings that did take place in the councils of war. Mm -hmm. And so he really brought all of these strategies once he was in the presidency and the options that were available to him in the Constitution were not um, working out to be sufficient. He And he does decide to create the cabinet. He really draws on this practice, on this tradition, and models the cabinet after the councils of war that had served him really quite well. So that comes a little bit later. Uh, when that happens. So let's talk about the department heads. I guess I want to, I want to distinguish between sort of when there were department heads and when there's an institution of the cabinet, because mm -hmm. um, that's what you're distinguishing. So um, let's talk about some of the department heads that are less well-known or some aspect of their personality or, or experience that's less well-known. We're going to talk about Hamilton last, because frankly, I'm getting tired of Hamilton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how dare I say that? But let's talk okay. about... Let's talk about, I, I mean, uh, the most underrated member of Washington's administration, Henry Knox. Yes. So I just think that um, Knox is so important and is so um, undervalued. And so I'm glad that you asked it in that way. Um, well, it's because, so of, it's because of Jefferson's little, the honest. I mean, that's, that's sort of, it's great. It was some of the most successful um, poisoning the well for future historians was those little notes that Jefferson left behind of his time in Washington's oh, yeah. administration. And he Absolutely. really, he makes uh, Knox, he does a brilliant, really great writing. I mean, it's like a character out of Tristram Shandy. Um, yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I mean, he, uh, 
I, I do go a little bit on a hobby horse in chapter two. I talk about the importance of understanding all of their backgrounds. And I, I say basically just that, which is that Jefferson often thought when Knox was agreeing with Hamilton, it was because he was slow or he wasn't smart or he was lazy or he was just, you know, Hamilton's toady. And really he had so much more war experience than Hamilton ever had and was such an experienced general and then was the secretary of war under the Confederation Congress. And so he came to all of these positions. Oftentimes they were the same position as Hamilton, but it's because he had many of the same experiences. And so I'm glad you said that because I agree that he's uh, Jefferson, Jefferson often shapes how we think of people, including Randolph. Um, mm -hmm. and it's not always right, mm -mm. but and, yeah, go on. Yeah. But so the department, uh, the department heads, so, um, Congress begins to realize in the middle of the revolutionary war that this concept of setting up a government by committee is not working very well because people tend to go in and out of Congress and you lose institutional knowledge and, um, you know, making a decision amongst 10 people can be very difficult as we all know. And so they decide that they really need to have some of the key issues, whether it be foreign policy or the war effort or finances under one person's control to try and make it a more efficient process. And so we start to see the gradual evolution of the executive departments or what become the executive departments um, during the war. And uh, during the Confederation period after the end of the war, those departments continue, but they are responsible to Congress. So they report to um, Congress instead of the president. But um, everyone really understands that having one person in charge of these things is a much more efficient way to go about doing things. And so while the departments are not officially created until the first session of the first federal Congress in 1789, everyone kind of knows that it's heading in that direction. And they are mentioned as such in the Constitution. Yes. So they're all mentioned. It's just that they're not actually created by the Constitution. No. They're created in Congress. Yes. And it, there's there's a sense that there'll be... Now, there, you know, speaking of the Constitution briefly, uh, you say that... Was it Pinckney who came up, who suggested that the cabinet be included in the Constitution and that was turned down? Charles yeah, Cook so there are a couple of yes, yeah, so there are a couple of different councils that are proposed. Um, George Mason proposes one, and in, um, in Madison's original plan, there's another. But those are more like the councils that we saw in the state constitutions in the 1780s, and were really intended to. Well, I'm not sure if they were intended to, but they would have had the effect of limiting executive power. And so Charles Pinckney proposes a, a council that is basically almost identical to the one that the cabinet ends up being, which is that it's really just to provide advice and support, and the president is not obligated to get their opinion or to follow their opinion in any way. So... At the beginning of his administration, he's got these personalities that he's, a, he's uh, bringing on, I was going to say hiring, but inveigling back into public life, some of them. Um, how does he select them? How does Washington select these people? So Washington had a couple of criteria that were very important to him. Um, he first and foremost, he wanted to know who they were. He wanted to know them personally, because if you're going to take someone's advice, it's always helpful if you, you know, have a personal relationship to begin with. So he knew all of them in one form or another before the war um, and had had a good working relationship with them. Um, the second was that they had to have some sort of expertise or knowledge or experience that he did not have. So Edmund Randolph was a trained uh, a trained lawyer. He was a brilliant legal mind. He had served Washington as his private lawyer for many years. Um, he had served as the Virginia Attorney General. Um, so he was really, really well respected for his legal prowess. And governor, as you point out, I mean, it's, what's really interesting is that these guys have been governors beforehand. That, that wasn't many of them, half of them, um, and that seems almost to be a, re a requirement for some uh, for some of them. Yeah, I mean, they had to have they had to be. He really was picking from the cream of the crop in terms of leaders that were available. Um, he wanted them to be experienced and um, trusted by the American people, but again, to provide something that he didn't have. So, mm -hmm. of course, Jefferson had diplomatic experience, and Washington had only left the nation once to go to Barbados when he was a teenager. Um, 
Hamilton had a brilliant financial mind, and while Washington certainly understood the proposals that Hamilton was bringing forth, he didn't have the same sort of creative knack of coming up with solutions in that same way. And Knox had served as the Secretary of War during the Confederation, so he had been responsible for negotiating and trying to maintain peaceful relationships with Native Americans. And that was a huge part of the first couple of years of the administration and something that Washington really valued in his expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's, go ahead. And then I should say the last, um, the last criteria, which I think is, is really important in terms of Washington's precedent, is that he wanted people that represented different parts of the nation. They needed to represent different regions, different interests, different factions, different backgrounds. So, I mean, obviously they're all white guys. And so the definition of what diversity looks like was obviously a much narrower definition than we are comfortable with today. But, um, Knox was making his home in Maine. He was, you know, a military background. He did not come from family wealth. Hamilton was in New York and he was close with the sort of merchant trade elite. Randolph and Jefferson were both slave-owning Virginians. And so there was really this diversity that allowed people to feel that they were represented in the administration and they were heard. And it helped foster emotional bonds when the nation was really quite tenuous at that time. It is interesting that he didn't um, select anyone from south of Virginia. He didn't select a Pennsylvanian, at least in the first in the first administration. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, in some ways, you know, he does make up for that with like the uh, Supreme Court appointments. So uh, James Iredell is from North Carolina. He's one of the early justices. Um, now the other, some of the others are escaping me. John Jay, of course, was from New York. Jay, James um, Wilson from Pennsylvania. Oh, so there you go. Perfect. So. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think that he really viewed these early appointments as a way to try and build ties between the states. And most presidents since him have tried to use the same approach and make sure that there are people representing different races and colors and uh, genders and religions and perspectives in various different ways um, as a way to strengthen their administration. Mm -hmm. Um, How did the cabinet emerge. The, cabinet, the, the United States cabinet is an emergent property. Um, what were the, it's, it's one of the particularly fascinating things is, is the things, is the alternatives that Washington experimented with uh, before he actually hit upon what we now think of as normal. Yeah. So, um, as I alluded to earlier, uh, the constitution has two options that are outlined for the president to obtain advice. And they're both in article two, section two. And the first is that the president can obtain written advice from the department secretaries on matters pertaining to their department. And that phrase was very carefully crafted because they wanted the advice to be written down so that there would be evidence about who said what and who advocated which position. And so there would be transparency at the highest levels of government and people would have to take responsibility for what they did. And they also didn't want people giving advice on any old issue because they wanted people giving advice on things that they were experts on. So they really wanted you know, department secretaries giving advice on their department. Um, So that was option one. Option two was uh, today, you know, we think of the Senate as being either a rubber stamp for treaties and appointments or rejecting them. But at the time, the delegates expected that the Senate would serve as a council of foreign affairs. And in 1789, the Senate was only 24 because Rhode Island hadn't yet ratified the Constitution and sent senators. So it wasn't that big of a group. It wasn't wildly implausible that that would work. Um, But that was really their expectation because the Senate was at that point indirectly elected. So they were at least responsible to the state and would have to be sort of responsible advisors. Um, So Washington initially in the first two and a half years of his administration, he does um, experiment with these two options. He goes to the Senate and that goes very badly because the Senate wanted to debate the issue slowly and refer it to committee and deliberate and sort of act as a legislative body would. And Washington wanted me, you know, I mean, it's well, not it's surprising. Fast, but... It's fascinating. The DNA of the Senate was already established almost instantaneously. I mean, nothing's changed. Yeah. 
And that's oh, really absolutely. Quite extraordinary. Yeah. And Washington was a military man. He came from a military mindset and he wanted immediate advice. And, you know, anyone who has served in the military or has family, you know that if your superior officer asks you a question, you answer the question. And um, so that was what Washington was expecting. And so they really just had a conflict of perspectives, a conflict of expectations. And on his way out, Washington swore that he would never again go to the Senate for advice. And he kept his word, and he didn't. Um, now that's I've so, heard that as, as, as referred to as an apocryphal story, but you take that, uh, you believe that that really happened. Well, so it's kind of you know it's, it's a small kind of point, like a, but you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to say because it is widely reported, although it's a myth. But what's important is his, I think, his actions, and he sure. never does go back. No, whether or not he says it, he certainly thought it because he didn't yeah, go yeah. back the, for their advice. There's another part of uh, of, of Washington too is that he is a micromanager. Um, we can say it's because he was a slave master, uh, but he, uh, God knows he treats his cousins and white overseers and particularly in just as, in as niggling and micromanaging a way as he does anyone else. Um, and that must have been deeply, that, that is another thing that must have deeply frustrated him. Yeah, I mean, I think that he, um, it's interesting because we see with his depart, with the departments, he isn't always quite that controlling in terms of details, as long as they're really keeping him sending regular reports and keeping him updated. He kind of lets them do their thing um, mm-hmm. for the most part. But when he asks something of them, he expects there to be a fairly immediate answer and he expects yeah. to have a fairly immediate result. Um, and there's no doubt that he had wildly high expectations for everyone, including himself. And some people certainly had trouble meeting those. Um, and the Senate was definitely one of them. (laughs) Um, so, so anyway, so he basically, he dismisses that option and he starts using written advice with the department secretaries more regularly. But if we think today, you know, when we send emails back and forth, sometimes we'll forget a question or we'll have a follow-up point or, you know, something maybe isn't conveyed clearly in terms of tone. And now imagine trying to have that communication with Parchman and Quill. Mm-hmm. And you know, it takes a while to write it out and then you have to let it dry and then it has to be delivered, you know, hand delivered by a messenger, probably an enslaved person. And then, you know, you have to wait for the other person to do their reply and for them to let it dry. And it's just, it's so tedious and it's so slow. And the issues that were facing the first federal government were extraordinary and complex and difficult. And it just really didn't work to only do it on paper. And so he starts, um, they would, you know, exchange the correspondence and then the secretaries would come and have individual consultations with him and one-on-one. And, um, that way they could have additional conversation and, you know, follow-up questions and figure out the details. So he does that more or less for the first two and a half years. Um, and then he convenes on November 26th, 1791, he convenes the first cabinet meeting because Jefferson gets some frustrating news from the British minister about a potential treaty. And he basically decides that it's time to sit down with everyone and discuss the scope of diplomatic affairs with everyone, with Great Britain, with France, with Spain, and to figure out what their approach was going to be going forward. Um, And nothing much happens of that meeting per se, but it is an important moment because it was the first time it happened. Um, And then the cabinet meets a handful of times in 1792, but in 1793 is where it really picks up speed and and kind of takes off. Before we get to that, what was his uh, attempt to use a Supreme Court as a a sort of advisory function? uh, Yeah, so... I mean, so Washington had close relationships with all of the people that he appointed the Supreme Court. Even if they weren't close friends, he had followed their work. He had followed their writing. He admired what they had to say about the Constitution and other legal issues. Um, And he and John Jay were quite close. And so he would frequently ask Jay for his advice, who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He would frequently ask Jay for his advice on um, all sorts of issues, anything from like how should the president um, entertain uh, social guests or should he go to social events? I mean, like everything you can imagine that Washington was having to decide for himself every day and craft these new practices he wanted Jay's advice on. Um, And Jay was perfectly happy to supply 
that sort of information and to give him his perspective and to participate. Um, in 1793, in the midst of the neutrality crisis, which I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but That's great. we're, we're, um, going, we're the, going there right after that. So, so let's just segue right into it. Sure. So in 1793, France declares war on Great Britain and it quickly spirals into an international conflict. And the United States very quickly realizes that it cannot afford both economically or physically to be in another war. Not to mention they don't really have an army and they don't really have a navy. So even if they wanted to, it was not really going to happen. And we, um, and we and can't, I don't, I don't think we can overstate. We're going to, this is, this is lovely because the next week we're going to be talking with Alex Mika Barija about his, uh, his book on, the the Second World War, which the Napoleonic Wars, <laughs> um, the Revolutionary and 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 and, uh, and Napoleonic Wars, and it's impossible. It's one of the things, hardest things to get people to realize is how that affected American politics. I think, and how uh, absolutely. It could have been devastating. It almost was devastating to American politics. The, the snake pit of American politics from 1793 to 1800 and beyond came from this war. Um, and everything, the Washington's farewell address cannot be understood without the context of that war. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's of immense importance, which I don't, I don't think it can be actually overstated how important that was. And one of the ways is it really gets the cabinet going. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And I think a lot of times people forget because the United States did stay out of the war. And so, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's, you know, a non-event. But um, in terms of you know, thinking through the first, for the first time about what does it mean to be neutral? And there are so many questions that that concept um, brings up in terms of like, how do you treat um, non-neutral people who come into the nation? How do you respond to their ships that are coming into the ports? What sort of things are they allowed to buy? Are they allowed to buy war supplies? Are you then contributing to the war efforts? I mean, there are just like a million legal questions. And then if you decide that that is indeed not allowed, who is going to enforce that? And how is that going to be prosecuted? So there are a million questions that the administration had to figure out about how to stay neutral. And the country had never done that before. And that was huge. And so it required basically 51 cabinet meetings in 1793, um, up to five times per week for many hours at a time, and was really the the huge issue of that year and, and afterwards, because it did have ripple effects for many other issues. But um, I forget why I was saying something about, the, oh, right, the Supreme Court. So, okay, so when we think about these legal issues, um, Washington, does it, they're, they're faced with this legal issue of how do they respond to people who are breaking their neutral rules, basically. And they decide to ask the, the cabinet decides to ask the Supreme Court for guidance and they ask the entire group. And basically the entire group decides that they can't really give that advice. It's not appropriate. Hmm. Um, which is interesting because John Jay had had no problem giving advice and also had no problem continuing to give advice individually thereafter. But um, it is an important moment when the Supreme Court collectively decides that they are not able to um, play that role as an official advisor for the administration. Yeah, I know that's another book idea for you. But when you think about it, it's only relatively recently that it's 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 maybe even the last 30 years that it seems uh, it's bad for the president to ask this chief justice anything, anything, maybe like the weather. Um, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, but uh, when you look at the how um, FDR used members of the uh, Supreme Court for advice and counsel and all the rest of it. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it's it's this is a relatively idea, this sort of the, the separation of powers means never talking. Um, and certainly that wasn't part of uh, at least John Jay's attitude at first. Sure. Well, I mean, and especially in the early years when we think about, you know, everyone always says that it's a small world and they especially say that about Washington, D.C. now. But (laughs) if you think about, um, you know, the early government, we're talking about a handful of people. And so they were, you know, when they were not officially in office, they were socializing with each other. They were going to the theater together. They were going on rides. They were going to go see local gardens. I mean, it was a very, very small community and a lot of crossover. Yeah, yeah. So the 1793 cost, the, the Supreme Court turns down the opportunity to be the sort of um, Washington's think tank and advisory mm-hmm. uh, uh, panel. Um, and so then he finally convenes this cabinet. Um, so how does, what does he use them for? And what do they use the cabinet for? What do the members of the yeah. cabinet, how do, they, how do they find it useful for them? 
that's a great question. So Washington views the cabinet in much the same way that he had viewed the councils of war. So he, of course, wanted advice and support. He used it as a way to try and build um, unity among the secretaries, especially if there was a controversial decision and he wanted to make sure they were all on the same board, on the same page. Um, it didn't always work, and he was more than happy to take a, you know, take a step and make a decision even if they didn't all agree. But if he could get them to first, then that was great. And he also used it for cover for controversial decisions um, politically. He didn't ever really have the need to publicize those decisions, but if he did need that support, he kind of had it in his back pocket. Um, and for very, him, very Lincolnian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Lincoln did exactly and, the same sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think people don't appreciate enough. Uh, Washington was a, was actually very politically savvy and was very emotionally astute in terms of emotional intelligence. And so yeah, I've thought I've counted it up once and he spent at least twice. No, he spent three times as long as an elected uh, official. Uh, in various capacities than he did as general. Interesting. So, yeah. 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 And so, and he also did very well in terms of, um, like he was very rarely going to be the type of person who made a speech in some sort of a political gathering, but he would work behind the scenes and he would. So in the constitutional convention, he had tea, he went to the theater, he listened to music, he had dinner, he had all of these events with the other delegates as a way to sort of subtly persuade. And you can bet that they were talking about these issues because why wouldn't they? Um, but he was better in sort of a one-on-one or in a small group setting. Um, and he did not mind the conflict that came out of the cabinet conversations, for him, actually, it was really helpful to have all sides there arguing their different perspectives and because it was a way to stress test an idea and a way for him to get all of the information and hear all of the different points of view and then he could go decide. Um, Now, of course, his cabinet secretaries sometimes felt very differently about the subject. Jefferson famously really hated the conflict in the cabinet, um, just absolutely despised it. And um, so he, you know, he initially really thought that he could Um, influence Washington and persuade him to follow his vision of what the nation should be. And while he didn't necessarily appreciate it, Washington did often side with him. He was actually fairly, Washington was fairly attentive to going back and forth between Jefferson and Hamilton. Um, At least that's what it sort of reveals in the notes when I was looking at it from, from, you know, several hundred years later. Um, So Jefferson really tries to persuade Washington. Then he kind of tries to undermine Hamilton, but the secretaries themselves collectively worked really hard to bolster executive power. Um, Mm -hmm. That was the thing that I found, and maybe is sometimes surprising, in moments like the neutrality crisis, in moments like the Whiskey Rebellion, in moments like the debates over Jay's Treaty, the cabinet worked really hard to bolster, to improve, to expand executive authority, not cabinet authority, like presidential authority. And so they were not trying to get more power for themselves at the expense of the president. They were trying to strengthen the president. And even people like Jefferson, who later, you know, really disagreed with some of Washington's perspectives on presidential authority, he was, you know, working with Congress to try and get Washington's, you know, authority over certain things expanded. He was uh, negotiating with Genet, who was the French minister who came during the neutrality crisis and caused some serious problems problems about what, you know, president authority should be. So even he, who didn't always agree, was very much in support of this vision of executive responsibility. And I think this, this is, by the way, this is, this is the Stravinsky solution to the Jefferson problem. Or I should say one of the many Jefferson problems, uh, <laughs> um, but the uh, Jefferson is executive problem. How could this guy who is so anti-Washington become such a strong executive? Well, Stravinsky mm-hmm. says, let me t- speak for you, um, because he'd already been a governor. <laughs> he was already executive himself. And when he became uh, a member of an executive de- department, a head of an executive department, and part of the uh, present, the Article Two powers, he was very interested in making sure that they existed and that they were sufficient. And lo and behold, he continued to do that when he was president. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, I do think it's really interesting because when we look at his cabinet, he draws so much um, from Washington, but he makes a distinction between the first um, term of Washington's office and the second term when he thinks that Hamilton really sort of, you know, took over. Um, but he draws a lot of the practices from Washington's first term, including cabinet meetings and, and that sort of relationship. And so I think that um, it is one way to look at Jefferson in that he didn't always approve of Washington's decisions, but he approved of the, the decision-making model anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about another um, exemplar of the cabinet in action, the, the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, this is uh, Jefferson's gone by that time. Um, yes. And there's uh, there's a lot of toing and froing. And um, so, how do, how does the cabinet work during that uh, during that crisis? Yeah. So the Whiskey Rebellion is another great case study to see how the cabinet sort of functions. Um, Jefferson had retired at the end of 1793 and Edmund Randolph was promoted to the Secretary of State. And so he comes into that office, which is a very important one. And um, when the Whiskey Rebellion really becomes violent in Western Pennsylvania in the beginning of the summer, uh, the cabinet decides that Uh, some sort of action needs to be taken. And there are basically four options at Washington's disposal. He can leave it to the states to solve the problem, but um, protests against the whiskey tax had been steadily increasing and the states hadn't done much about it, so that was kind of a a no-go. He could wait for Congress to come back in session uh, in the fall, um, but he felt like they really felt like an immediate action was needed. Um, They could convene an emergency session of Congress and ask Congress to look into it, or the president could use sort of a loophole in a recent uh, bill that had been passed, which permitted the president to call up local militia in the event of a rebellion or an invasion, as long as one of the justices of the Supreme Court approved that evidence. And so what they very quickly decide, and it's pretty remarkable because they decide this relatively quickly, that the president is going to be in charge of this policy. And um, Randolph thinks that Washington should pursue peace first, and then if that doesn't work, then send out the militia. And Hamilton and Knox think that he should send out the militia right away. And the new attorney general, William Bradford, thinks that he should send out peace commissioners, but he should be preparing the militia just in case it fails. And Washington agrees with this perspective because... um, Optically, it looks really good to be pursuing peaceful solutions first, um, but he didn't really want to waste any time. So it was the right sort of middle ground approach. But what's amazing about this decision is that they basically agree with relatively little debate to completely sideline Congress over a domestic issue Hmm. and move forward pretty quickly to they meet with the Pennsylvania officials. And Thomas Mifflin was the governor of Pennsylvania at that time. And he and Washington and he and Knox and he and Hamilton had had a longstanding contentious relationship dating back to the Revolutionary War. And so he really, you know, objects to this uh, strong executive action. And the cabinet basically works to bully the Pennsylvania officials into submission and into compliance with this federal policy. And there are a series of letters which are just absolutely fantastic where Mifflin writes something that is super sarcastic and Hamilton drafts up the reply and Randolph reads it to make sure it's okay and correct and then sends it out under his desk just to make sure that, um, that, you know, they kind of have this theory that because Randolph is the most Republican leaning of the secretaries and doesn't have the same bad relationship that Hamilton did, that maybe Mifflin would be a little bit more um, amenable to hearing what Randolph had to say. But the exchange is just extraordinary. It is colorful. It is fun to read. Um, it makes history fun. But so, but basically the cabinet bullies Pennsylvania into complying. And, um, so it's an extraordinary moment where the cabinet is instrumental in carving out this zone of authority for the president at the expense of state and congressional leadership. Let's talk about the, um, the first real, real great uh, cabinet scandal, uh, Edmund Randolph uh, and yes. his, um, well, what was it? Go tell that story. <laughs> 
it is a really, it is a really sad from, from my perspective, it is a very sad case of something that really didn't need to happen the way it had to happen. Um, so basically the backstory is, um, the French minister in the United States wrote a series of letters to the government back in Paris. And those letters were on a French ship and they were captured by a British ship. And that captain gave the letters to the British minister who then gave them to Timothy Pickering and Oliver Wolcott, who were now in the cabinet in 1795. And they were arch federalists. They were very loyal to Hamilton. They were sort of frustrated by Randolph's close relationship with Washington, his influence in the cabinet and his more moderate um, political position. And so they read these letters and they translate these letters. And while my French is not very good, people whose French is much better than mine say that the translation that they did was really quite terrible. (laughs) And um, (laughs) so they translate these letters and they conclude that, that Randolph had basically offered to sell state secrets to France in return for a bribe. And in reality, what I think probably happened is Randolph said, and he was alluding to the situation in the Whiskey Rebellion the year prior, um, with a little bit of money, you could influence the events in the country. Because what he was saying is if France sided with the rebels, then he could make the rebels much more powerful and change the course of events. But that's not how they translated it. And unfortunately, Washington's French was about as good as mine, and he really relied on their translation. And so when Washington decides to finally confront Randolph, he does so in a way that is very hurtful for Randolph. And they have been close friends for almost three decades. I think they were about as close as anyone, as as Washington ever got to another man. He tended to have an easier time opening up to women. But I think that as men relationships went, they were about as close as possible. Um, Randolph had been incredibly loyal to him and, um, Washington decides to confront him with Pickering and Wolcott there as witnesses. He offers them the opportunity to question Randolph and they were lower ranking cabinet secretaries that had served for much less time. And he did so after sort of keeping this accusation a secret for a little while. And so the combination of those things, caused Randolph to act a little bit rashly. And um, rather than calmly explaining the situation or providing a better translation or anything like that, he, in the context of honor culture in the 18th century, when your reputation is everything and your political currency, your ability to be a, an active member in society, he resigns immediately. He locks his office so that no one can accuse him of like stealing papers and he leaves. And then later he tries to write this vindication Mm. of what had actually happened and tell the story. And he's asking for letters and Washington is trying to, um, you can kind of tell in some of the writing later on, he's feeling maybe a little bit bad about how everything went down and he's trying to send him the letters, but some of them get lost or some of the requests get lost. I don't know if Pickering or Wolcott had anything to do with that. I have no evidence that they did, but I think that they're kind of shady figures <laughs> in this whole thing. But so anyway, Randolph gets really frustrated and he decides to publicize all of it and he prints all of this correspondence. And there is nothing that is more was more likely to get Washington to end a relationship with someone than if they publicized correspondence. Yeah. And Um, it's just really sad because Washington loses his closest advisor in the cabinet. He had been much closer to Randolph than he was to the other secretaries. Um, he really, I think could have used his advice over the last year in office. Um, he loses a close friend and Randolph, although he does go back to Virginia and he works as a lawyer, he never really regains the same stature. So it's just, in that instance, Washington would, had basically concluded that the most important thing was that the administration and his presidency be above reproach, and he didn't allow, um, you know, he couldn't allow any hint of scandal to affect his actions, um, which I get and I think is probably the right standard to set for the presidency, but it was definitely a sad moment. Well, it wouldn't be the last time that a cabinet scandal or pseudo scandal or semi scandal has chewed up a reputation and spat it out. <laughs> no. No, I mean, yeah. this is like, this is a, this, there's something to do with the actual structure of that institution, I think. Um, yeah, which well, leads I mean, to this. the thing that's really interesting about the cabinet is that when a 
cabinet is working effectively and it's working really well, they tend to blend into the background and the president gets all the praise for things going well. And when the cabinet is problematic, then they become much more visible mm-hmm. and all of their scandals and their problems tarnish the presidency. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you can see what it's doing, you probably, it's probably not going great. Um, mm-hmm. This was just the first of many, as you said, the first of many examples. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's um, start closing this up. And you make a, a, a big argument early in the book, and um, you know I'm, I, I buy it. By, home, you know, right? Yeah, by the end of the book, that people have talked about the executive turn um, in American political culture for some time, American the history of American government. And you are arguing that we really are about a hundred years late, uh, 120 years late uh, from the, uh, when the executive turn actually um, began. And um, it makes me look at American politics and political history, political culture in a different way when I'm done with the book. So could you well, explain? Well, thank you. That's, that's yeah, wonderful. I <laughs> well, when I think about that, I mean, it makes now, it makes a lot of good sense. So like, can you explain the uh, ex- the executive turn and sort of the standard received uh, view, the SRV? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are two sort of... Com- two arguments. The first is that executive power really first takes off in the Civil War um, for understandable reasons as Lincoln and his administration are trying to figure out how to um, feed and supply and manage all of these troops across the country. And then there was a significant sort of turn away from presidential authority in the late 19th century. But then in World War II, after the Great Depression, of course, with FDR, then we see a big upswing in um, executive authority that never has really gone away because... Well, we could even say Teddy Roosevelt brought back the executive authority, and, and Wilson kept that going. Um, if that would be a different um, way Yes and no. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that would be one sort of... I, I might have heard myself say that in class once. Um, sure. But that... You know, that's that you you often hear that in the sort of an American survey. Uh, people talk about the power of personality, you know, all those boring guys with beards, and along comes <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, and he actually wants the presidency to do something because he's bored otherwise, and blah, 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 blah. But yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, regardless of whoever, you know, depending on who you're talking to, people put it somewhere in the 20th century. And then, of course, you have the military industrial complex, and then you have the imperial presidency. So, my argument is obviously the executive, in terms of numbers and people, was much smaller. In terms of the scope of issues they were dealing with, was much smaller. But Washington and his cabinet work really hard to make sure the president is the one that is managing and in control of domestic diplomatic, domestic and diplomatic issues, and then also an arbiter of constitutional questions. And that, I think, has not fully been appreciated. Um, and while, of course, there are ebbs and flows after that, he was the first one to do so. And it does really shape what comes after him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um- so, can you give some more examples of that? I mean, how is how is he creating? Um, he's creating executive power, but he's also jealously guarding it. Could you and could you give another example of how he does that? Yeah. So a great example occurs in the debates um, around the Jay Treaty in 1796. So Washington received the Jay Treaty in 1795. He signs it, um, or I'm sorry, Senate ratifies it. Then he decides to sign it. And then there's a clause in the Jay Treaty that requires the United States to create a commission to adjudicate debt that was owed to British merchants from before the war. And this commission is going to cost money because you have to pay people and then you have to pay those debts. And so then it goes to the House of Representatives because they're, of course, in charge of raising money for the commission. And Republicans in the House absolutely hate the Jay Treaty. They think it's wildly unfair. They think it's a very bad deal. My humble opinion is that they were wrong. Um, But anyway, they hate it. And so they use this opportunity to try and scuttle the treaty. And what they decide to do is request all executive papers pertaining to the negotiations leading up to the Jay Treaty. And um, basically what Washington decides to do, and he he writes a letter back to the House, which again, in terms of historical reading, is top-notch. He sends a letter back to the House and he says that If this were an issue pertaining to impeachment, I would happily comply 
with the committee's request, as I have happily complied with committee's requests in the past, which he had. He had handed over executive papers. Um, but in this instance, because it is regarding diplomacy, and diplomacy requires secrecy to work and to facilitate relationships, I need to guard that privacy. He then takes the opportunity to basically give the House of Representatives a history lesson, and he says, I was at the Constitutional Convention when we debated these things, and it was decided that the Senate and the President would determine foreign affairs. The House was not going to have a role in determining diplomatic policy. And if you don't believe me, I have the journals from the convention in the Department of State offices. You are welcome to come check them out. It's basically like the ultimate, you know, like checkmate, F you. Like, it's just <laughs> like, it's, it's such a bold move. And I love it so much because you can tell at that point he has, you know, six months, eight months left in his presidency, and he's so tired of being criticized, and he's so yeah. pissed at it. And he's like, he's just like, it's, I think it's very funny. But anyway. It, it is a very funny, it's, it's that lifelong <laughs> desire of his to go on the attack. He can finally indulge it. He always had to keep it in check during the war, during the presidency. Now he can just like rip the coat off and go charging at him. Yeah, and no one can say he's wrong because he does have the records to back it up. And um, it is a very effective move because his... Um, and so this is the first time he asserts executive privilege, his assertion of executive privilege and his strong stance against House interference does really make the Republican resistance sort of start to disintegrate. And um, so it was, a, it was a very bold move, but it was an important one for a lot of reasons in, in terms of executive power and executive privilege and all that jazz. Hmm. Um, institutional history has had a bad rep for a long time. Uh, you might have noticed, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and institutions themselves, uh, as we have all noticed, for the like, well, as long as uh, I've been alive, institutions have also had a bad uh, cultural rep. Um, I think there's some signs uh, in interesting ways that people of various ideologies are realizing that this is a mistake. Um, what do you think about institutions now that you finished a book about? Uh, one, uh, an institution which I should add, uh, as we discussed in episode 118, that people haven't written about since 1912. Um, That's correct. So, uh, which shows how uh, institutional history might have a bad rep, but it also, it's so bad that it hasn't actually been done about the most, <laughs> some of the most important things. Um, yeah. So what's, what's your view about institutions now, having, having written a book about uh, such an important political one? Well, the thing that strikes me the most is just how much of institutions are not actually written down in law or in the Constitution or even in any sort of guidebook. So much of institutions are norms and culture. Mm -hmm. And that is... That's the interesting um, part. Yeah, it's the really interesting part because that's the stuff that evolves and grows and emerges outside of, you know, the legal handbook and is the stuff that really makes things colorful. And so that was really the point of this book was to look at how does this stuff flesh out in a way that is not written down in the Constitution. Right. And, um, and I also think that in terms of some of our earlier institutions, it's so important to see where they come from because you know, in, in terms of Article 2, it is so short compared to Article 1 and has so few details about what the day-to-day -day governing should actually look like. And so the the structure of the executive branch comes for, in the doing. It comes in the day-to-day -day and really has everything to do with what has been done before. And, you know, most presidents follow that and some presidents don't. And we've seen a little bit, to, you know, in recent years what happens when presidents don't follow those cultural norms. But if there, if there, there isn't actually anything stopping people often from doing something that is different, that's just based on norm. And so I think that that really has showed people the importance of institutions and sort of their limitations, but also why they're valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk, uh, and, and just before we close up, talk about uh, the History Summit once more time. It's historysummit.com. 
Yes. So historysummit.com, the videos will go live on April 25th. Be sure to check them out and watch the videos and then head over to Twitter. And on all of the pages, there's a link to the author's Twitter page. So you don't need to find them individually. They'll be right there. Um, and you can ask questions about history more broadly or about the project that they're talking about. Um, and the videos will stay live after that if you want to watch them later. But the, the main conversation will be taking place over the course of that day. And I encourage you all to to tune in. And if there are books that you're interested in, you're, it's possible for you to do so, of course, buy those as well. And I, I should ask, um, how many presidents have we had so far? Was it 40? What, what is it now? We've had 44 men. There have yes. been 45 presidents in office. So um, is this the first of 44 more books on the, on the cabinet? <laughs> no, okay. No, no, yeah. no. no, no. I, well, the next, the next book is going to stay, it is going to stay with the cabinet. Um, it's going to look at Adams and Jefferson. They've been written about a lot as men and as presidents, but never really wow. through the lens of the cabinet. And I think that that is such an important part of who I they feel, are. And I feel trilogy coming on. I think we're going to go through Madison Monroe by the time we're done. It's a trilogy. Uh, I, no, I think, I mean, I'm not really supposed to say this, but I think Monroe is really quite boring. Um, yeah, we, we've but talked about anyway, that privately. Um, but, uh. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, the thing that's so important about the cabinet, especially in terms of Adams and Jefferson, is Adams was one of the worst cabinets um, in history because it was sort of borderline treasonous. And Jefferson's was one of the best. It had the least turnover um, in history. And so, those models reveal to us a lot about leadership and, you know, how people at the highest levels of government deal with ambition and ego and um, the big personalities around them. So I'm excited to, I've done some of the research. I'm excited to start figuring out how I want to tell that story. And um, hopefully it will be one that is interesting to people as well. I think it will be. My guest today has been Lindsay Travinsky. She's author, author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, published this very week by Harvard University Press. Lindsay, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking again. Thank you for having me. This was great. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 